0: Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac!
1: You blew it up!
0: Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an Executive Director of the Center. And instead of a regular interview like we usually do, this week we're going to show the presentations from a panel discussion we did recently, last week, on the issue of Ukrainian refugees, both on this side of the Atlantic and in Europe. And the full presentation along with Q&A and everything video, if you want to watch it, is on our website, as well as a transcript. What we're going to do for this podcast is just take out the presentations for each of the four speakers, which I think are pretty informative. And if you want to see, for instance, the PowerPoints that they're talking about, and, and several of them had PowerPoints, they are going to be in the show notes. The links are there. And in one case, there's also a report that we published that there'll be a link there too. So the first speaker, the first presenter, is Christoph Veresh, who is a visiting fellow here at the center, but his regular full-time job is as a senior researcher at the Migration Research Institute in Budapest. And he's going to be talking about the reactions of the EU generally and then also the experience of Hungary specifically in dealing with the wave of Ukrainian refugees that fled the Russian invasion some three and a half months ago.
3: Since the onset of the Russian invasion, roughly one third of Ukrainians have been forced from their homes. This is the largest human displacement crisis in the world today. According to a new UNHCR estimate, more than 7 million people remain internally displaced within Ukraine, and more than 15 million people require immediate humanitarian assistance inside Ukraine. According to estimates, more than 4.9 million Ukrainian refugees are inside the EU right now. At the beginning of the crisis, everyone was referencing uh, the border crossing data, like how many people crossed into Poland, how many people. Uh, crossed into Hungary. But honestly, it's difficult to uh, estimate the percentage of Ukrainians that were just guest workers commuting back and forth, and also those ones who continued to other um, European countries inside the Schengen area. On the map that you can see on the screen, the refugee population corresponds with the size of the green circles. This is based on estimates, not on border crossings. Obviously, the most refugees are in Poland, 1.1 million. The second country is Germany with uh, 780,000. Germany is not the frontline country obviously. The third one is the Czech Republic with 360,000 people. In Hungary there are approximately 100 120,000 refugees. In Romania 90,000 and in Slovakia 78,000. The refugees arriving from Ukraine are mostly children and women and elderly people because Ukraine prohibited men aged 18 to 60 from leaving the country. To make them available for uh, military conscription. I put this map up for two reasons. This is a map from Frontex, the European Border and Coastal Agency. The first is to show the distribution of internally displaced people, or IDPs, inside Ukraine. As you can see, in the western region of the country, there are uh, more than 2 million IDPs. Obviously, this is the, the part of the country which is furthest from the war. At the same time, where the fighting is the most intense in the eastern region, we also have approximately 2 million people. In the central and north region of the country, we have approximately 1.5 million people in the north and 1.5 million in the central region. The second reason this map is important is because of the recent, very recent trends in the refugee movement. During the first week of June, almost 18,000 more Ukrainians left the EU and returned to Ukraine, as opposed to those who left. And during the last week of May, this number was 40,000. So right now, there is more people returning to Ukraine than are uh, leaving the country. This was also recently confirmed by the Ukrainian National Railways that noted that the trains coming to Kiev from the western region to the country are usually 90-95% full or wereful at the end of May and at the beginning of June. Now I'm going to talk a bit about the, European, uh, the EU's response to the crisis. The European response to the refugee crisis was swift and decisive. The EU triggered the Temporary Protection Directive on the 4th of March, which gives temporary protection for all people that have a legal residence in Ukraine, so not just citizens. They have a residence permit for the entire duration of the protection, access to employment, housing, social welfare, medical treatment, education, but they don't have to go through the lengthy asylum process of European countries. The directive postulates that even though the Ukrainians entering the bloc can choose where they uh, register for the temporary protection directive, but once they registered in one specific country, then they have to stay in that country and they can only receive the benefits in that specific country. At the beginning of June, uh, approximately 3.2 million uh, Ukrainians have registered for the temporary protection uh, schemes of the 27 um, European uh, countries. Now moving on to Hungary specifically. It is very important to note that refugees are not only crossing directly from Ukraine, but also a significant number of people crossed into Hungary from Romania. Since the start of the invasion, uh, 1.2 million Ukrainian citizens and uh, legal residents crossed into Hungary from Ukraine and from uh, Romania. But most of these people uh, didn't choose to stay in this country. As of last week, only uh, 24,000 claims were submitted to the Hungarian authorities for temporary protection. The actual number of Ukrainian refugees in Hungary is higher though. According to government estimates, it should be between 100,000 and 140,000 people at the end of May. I have to stress again that since Hungary doesn't have border controls with Austria, Slovakia and Slovenia, it's difficult to estimate how many people actually leave the country after entering it from Ukraine and Romania. Because of this trend that I just described, Hungary can... uh, be identified not just as a frontline country, but also as a transit country during this refugee crisis, which means that most of the refugees in Hungary only require temporary help before they continue their journey to other uh, European countries. The cornerstone of the Hungarian government's response to the refugee crisis was that they distributed a large amounts of funds among refugee NGOs and they also took the role uh, to coordinate their activities to maximise the efficiency of these resources and to avoid duplications uh, of the efforts of NGOs. On the map that you can see on the screen, this is the Hungarian-Ukrainian border. We have five border crossings which now are um, operating 24-7. At the border, the Ukrainian refugees have uh, 24-7 access to medical care in temporary facilities. These facilities are equipped by mobile pharmacies to provide medicine for chronic diseases. The bulk of the medicine comes from the National Healthcare Reserve, which is Hungary's uh, strategic stockpile of medical supplies. With the refugee flow significantly abating, these facilities uh, set up at the border. Also, the temporary uh, shelters right now are uh, mostly empty. Now, I shortly would like to uh, touch on a very specific issue uh, relating to Hungary. Here you can see the, the ethnic map of Ukraine, and the little orange uh, spot on the western part is the country, is the Hungarian uh, ethnic minorities. Here is the, another map enlarging the region. According to a 2017 um, estimate, there were around 150,000 ethnic Hungarians in the Transcarpathia region, the part of Ukraine which is enlarged on the map. Already in uh, 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, there was a spike of uh, Hungarian emigration. This, after the start of the war, turned into a mass uh, exodus. There are some Hungarian-majority subcounty administrative units in the Transcarpathia region. Where up to 50% of the population left and moved into Hungary. While at the same time, uh, thousands and thousands of Ukrainian IDPs are moving in um, to the region to flee uh, the invasion and the war in the eastern part of the country. So, this can be um, described as a huge demographic shift in the region um, that the region itself hasn't seen since the end of World War II. There is another issue. Uh, That I would like to talk about. Since the start of the war, the European Union, and specifically Poland and Hungary, have been accused of applying racist double standards to the treatment of uh, Middle Eastern and African refugees uh, at the border. This has been uh, widely publicised in the mainstream American press. These um, allegations, however, miss basic facts. It is true that Ukrainian nationals can cross into the EU much easier than African nationals, but this is only because of simple administrative reasons. Since 2017, Ukrainians with a valid biometric passport can enter and stay in the Schengen area for 90 days without visa, which significantly speeds up their admission as refugees into the EU. In contrast, nationals of third countries, uh, when lacking a visa to the Schengen area, fleeing invasion, they have to go through a registration process at the border, which usually includes an interview, national security screening, and the issuance of a temporary residence permit. The frustration of African students waiting at the EU border to be registered, watching Caucasian Ukrainians wave through without a delay, is understandable. It has nothing to do with racism. The above-mentioned extra mechanisms ensure the protection of the external borders of the EU, and they are indispensable even during a refugee crisis. These mechanisms, however, are also in place to protect third-country nationals who are fleeing the conflict. At the beginning of the conflict, a large number of Ukrainian refugees didn't really need substantial help for the countries receiving them because they already had uh, friends and relatives in the EU whom they could rely on. This was not the case, obviously, for a third country national fleeing the war. Upon entering the Schengen area, they usually found themselves in a vacuum, and it was during these registration mechanisms that they learned about their options and could request a stay in the EU, or ask for help to return home. During the first 10 days of the conflict, the EU countries scrambled to help evacuate 18,000 Indians With Hungary alone assisting more than 6,000. Consequently, it's no surprise that the Indian Prime Minister uh, thanked Budapest for its effort to help Indian nationals fleeing the war. Moreover, Hungary helped to accommodate Somali as well as Bangladeshi students, even offering them the chance to continue their studies at Hungarian universities. These actions are anything but racist. What are the challenges for the future? If the war continues up until the winter, it could trigger a second wave of refugees. First of all, Ukraine does not have enough natural gas or oil to last through the winter, and even if it did, the damage to the country's civilian infrastructure is significant. For example, in Kharkiv, 80% of windows on residential buildings were shattered because of the widespread use of cluster munitions by the Russian army. Cluster munitions uh, detonate in the air and release a cluster of uh, smaller uh, bombs which fall incriminately uh, over a wide area, potentially putting civilians uh, at risk. Obviously, uh, during the summer, um, broken windows are not a huge problem. But during the winter in the eastern part of Ukraine, especially if you don't have proper heating or no heating at all, All those people will have to find refuge either in the western part of the country or inside the European Union. With that, I would like to thank you for your attention and thank you for coming.
0: The second speaker is Jadwiga Emiliewicz, who is a member of the Polish parliament, a former deputy prime minister of Poland, in fact, who is the current prime minister's point person, or one of them, on the refugee issue and she will be presenting the results of a survey the Polish government did, apparently the most detailed and extensive survey of Ukrainian refugees that any of the countries in Europe have done so far. A lot of interesting stuff about numbers, you know, how many are women, how many have gone back to Ukraine, housing issues, that sort of thing. It's pretty detailed. And for those who want to actually look at the specific slides she was showing, which have more detail than she presented, there's a link to the whole PowerPoint presentation in the show notes.
4: Thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me here and to be able to discuss the issue of refugees uh, crisis, which we have, as it has been mentioned before, the biggest crisis, refugees crisis since 1939 that we have uh, in Europe and uh, with the wave and the scope uh, of the people who come and actually, the final result, which has been unpredictable, both by the Polish politicians, by the politicians in the region, but also by the whole world, I think. You can hardly hear that we've got any troubles traditionally addicted with the refugees. You can heard uh, on no special crimes or any statements made by the local societies, as in Poland or in Czech or in Hungary, people complaining about. Me personally, I must say openly what I mentioned before. I thought that in Poland, with the, the honeymoon between Ukrainian and people will last not longer than one month. Whereas we are after one hundred days of war, people are not only coming here, coming to Poland, staying there, and experiencing a scope of hospitality that has never been before. As you must know also that we've got quite a tough historical momentum in our relationship before, traditionally, and it completely disappeared right now. As uh, has been mentioned at the beginning, I would like to present you some data because I've been invited by the Prime Minister Morawiecki, Prime Minister of Poland, just day after outbreak of war to the Chancellery of Prime Minister, using my experience, former experience, as the minister responsible for the economy to talk to international financial institutions, not only within the European Union, but also outside, for looking for support for this special and unique refugees crisis that we are having nowadays in Europe. And what was, of course, very important for us after the huge first wave of newcomers to Poland, you can envisage the process, it was in the highest momentum. It was 150,000 people crossing the border per day. Comparing with the former period, it was not more than 15,000, yeah? So if you can think only about what is happening on the border, not only on the Polish side, but also the Ukrainian one. And it was the end of February, beginning of March, when the temperature there was below zero Celsius. So it was a real tough, tough momentum. So we started to deal, to cope with those uh, people, to help them as soon as possible. And uh, the effort that has been paid by the state institutions and the local government institutions were fully supported by the NGOs and the simply single people. So the Poland has become a huge NGOs actually in that momentum. So people that has never been experienced or has never been employed or training anything in the NGOs simply started to do that. All of them feel that, yes, we have to do something with that. And you can meet people in the railway station, on the border, opening the houses for those people on the scope which has never been presented not only in Poland I think but you can hardly see this uh, situation in any other european member state country finally what has been mentioned 1000 times we don't have a refugee camps we've got a lot of newcomers but we have n- simply any single refugee camp so all those people has been located basically in the private apartment, but also by renting or arranged, organized apartments by the local municipality or the government. So there is no such a situation that we've got the circles of Ukraine somewhere gathered together. Nothing like that is existing. But I would like to bring you some fresh data, which are really, I must say, it was the data we want simply to have a a knowledge-based policy and to be able to understand who has come to Poland whom we have on the border, what are their plans, what they want to do, what are their qualifications, how much kids do we have in terms of uh, healthcare system and education system. So this is the survey, the largest survey that has been done after the outbreak of the war made in Europe. It is approximately 8,000 people being questioned. Comparing to the one made in Germany, it was 2,000 people being asked. This is um, more than 7,000, approximately 8,000 people asked. We did it together with the, we, I mean the Chancellor of Prime Minister, together with the Ukrainian Embassy and with the support of Facebook and Google, so to be able to direct the questions as wide, as broad as it is only possible. So I know that this is not in very favor of sociologists, because it is very difficult to make a proper trial, proper group of people, because representation is unknown. So this is very difficult to say whether we've got the real full answers. but taking into account finally I think it is really interesting and um, important. One more thing that should be added to all of uh, those preconditions is that Poland has started to issue the ID numbers for those who come for the refugees. We started to do it at the end of March, beginning of April. and. Uh, approximately 60% of those who come to Poland has applied for those IDs. But after this ID, we know only about the sex and age, nothing more connected with that. The ID is the door open to the all public services, the healthcare system, education system, everything what is necessary and what is open for the Polish citizens. It is opened as well for the Ukrainian. And what you see here, what is probably mistake in the survey. Those people who answer our questions here, more than ninety percent of them has applied for the ID. So if you compare with this total number what I mentioned, that 70% possess it, 30% not, this is the difference between the group and the people who stay in Poland. As I mentioned, the survey has been created and distributed in cooperation with the embassy of Ukraine in Poland and the GovTech is the part of the administration. And the promotion channels, as I mentioned, it was a Facebook, but also the channels of communication used by the Ukrainian in Poland. We've got 7,505 respondents remaining in Poland. The ch- number of children are combined, I will say the, about that a, a little bit later, and the combined by adults. 96% of those who answered the questions were women. And this is the real shape of the population because, as you know, the young boys and men could not leave Ukraine because of the war reasons. 39 is the average age of adults, respondents of our survey. Eight years and a half is the average age of children. So this is also important in terms of the school preparation, but also the openness for entering the labor market. Market. And top three previous regions of residence in Ukraine is uh, Kiev, the capital city, Dnipro-Pietrowsk and and Kharkiv. And top three current uh, localization of respondents in Poland is a Polish capital city, Warsaw, Krakow, the former capital city, and Wrocław, nearby, traditionally connected. In Wrocław, we've got a huge uh, amount of people. Wrocław has been added to Poland after the Second World War and located strongly by Polish people before the Second World War. So it, it is also the traditional place when the Ukrainian before, uh, before outbreak of the current war. But anyway, definitely the big uh, cities were the first choice of, of those who come to Poland. Structure of population of refugees residing in Poland. If you see on this uh, left side, uh, you've got the age, uh, which is uh, very important. So 48% of population is in a productive age. That means that this is the capital for the labor market as well, right? So 48% are under 18 years old. The gender, as I mentioned before, 96% women, only 4%. Men, If you think it has been said uh, at the beginning before, the means of transportation, so 52% come to Poland uh, with public buses, mainly arranged by the state, the Polish state, 25% by railways, also uh, arranged and paid by state, own car 14%, it was at the very beginning, first two weeks, it was those comers, those refugees who come with their own cars and also the riders offered by the private individuals and the last point is this traveling how many people are with families that come to poland only 21% travel alone another 50% cross the border with a maximum of two companions either one old person grandma grandpa and one kid or two kids just to sum up this what has been mentioned We are having nowadays, connecting with the dates for the 30th of May, 1.4 million. This is the estimated number of Ukrainian refugees residing in Poland. This is not according to the survey, but according to the knowledge that we have from the border guards. Yes, So, so this is the number of people residing in Poland. 61% 61% of them stayed in a temporary accommodation, free of charge. I'm mentioning that because there are, we, we will have some conclusions regarding how to deal with this group of people. Not more than half million of people. This is the estimated size of the new Ukrainian diaspora. So those people who declare themselves to stay in Poland for longer, yes? so to, who are not willing to come back to Ukraine. If you think about employment and financial independence, this is one important issue, which is that uh, up to 80% of adults have uh, savings for approximately one month, 60% for not more than two months. And this amount also of people is looking for a new job, which is a good message. They are not waiting for uh, the support, but, but they are willing to enter to the labor market also 80% of them declaring that the lack of language skills is a main barrier to the entering to this market. Although our languages are very similar, still it is not enough to enter fully, safely. It is enough to go to the shop, it is enough to go to use for some public services, but this is definitely not enough to enter to the labor market, especially if you think about the qualifications of those people, which is also unique comparing with the former previous uh, refugees uh, crisis. There are some data grabbed not from the survey and the questions, but from the SIM cards. So the location of those people, and this is what I said before, they are gathered mostly in the biggest cities, so Warsaw, the south part it is Krakow, south uh, west uh, is Wrocław. So We've got at the beginning, in the peak momentum, we've got three million point seven people that crossed the Polish border. 1.7 until now has come back to Ukraine. 0.6 has already left for other places outside Ukraine and outside Poland. 1.4, this is this estimated number of people currently residing in Poland. If we think of the accommodation, as I mentioned at the beginning, we don't have any refugee camp. So more than 60% of those who come to Poland resist in unpaid accommodations, 39 in a paid accommodation. Mainly they stay in the private individual, so someone who is not connected as a family or friends, the Ukrainian, because it is worth to be mentioned that before outbreak of war, we've got 1 million of Ukrainian being on the labor market in Poland. So that came in the last five, six years to Poland for for looking for the job and staying in Poland, working in Poland. So a lot of those who come after 24th of February simply find the accommodation in this 1 million diaspora already um, located in Poland, but another, almost 2 million another, firstly stayed in the Polish private uh, apartments. Family and friends, but also the public shelter, which is not very significant. Rented apartments uh, as well. But what is important? Uh, the this, the future accommodation because it it describe what are the plans of the, those people, what they really want to do in Poland. Forty four percent of them are answering that they want to rent a house, rent a flat, rent an, rent an accommodation. That means that they want to find a job, earn money for them, and being able to pay for the accommodation. This is really very, very important. So, in the short term, the accommodation refugees plan to stay for up to three months. In the long run, people want to rent the apartments, the accommodations. So, it is just the, the maybe might be interested that accommodation with no charge are broadly, mainly presented in the west part of Poland. So, Lublin, you see uh, the city, the biggest city close to the Eastern border, so close to the Ukrainian and Belarus border. Also in Warsaw, further Western, more paid apartments. And basically types of accommodation by city. So the private market, as you see, the yellow one is the biggest, the biggest share. And education, very interesting situation because in the, it is, as we said, there is a lot of kids that come to Poland and the year the average structure of age is a bit uh, above 8 years old so we've got half million children in the broadly school age because a kindergarten is a kind of a, a well organized taker system primary and secondary school nursery and uh, under one years old it is only 6% And what has happened when they come to Poland, it was, of course, a big openness of the schools and people, some of them come to the Polish schools, but it was just in the middle of the term when the education, the distance education has been still organized by the Ukrainian side. And a lot of them decided to finish, to complete the school year in the Ukrainian system. It is very difficult, of course, to enter to the school system just in the middle and to be classified. And then Those people still were thinking, a lot of them, that they will come back soon to the Ukraine. So they decided to do that. And that is why what did the the Polish government decided to offer the laptops and access to the internet for them rather than force them and push them to come to the Polish schools. And the, the whole system, the educational system, is now being prepared for the first September when the education, when the school year is starting in Poland to accept and to be open for those Ukrainian population who want to come to the school. And who is going to come? As you see, more than 50% want to come when the school year is started to send the Ukrainian students to the Polish school system. And this is, of course, the philosophical question regarding the school system whether and th- it was a discussion and it is still a discussion in Poland with the Ukrainian side whether we should prepare the Ukrainian schools with the Ukrainian system in Poland for the Ukrainian kids or rather we should support them to enter to the Polish uh, system well my experience as the former member of the government is rather Poland has got quite a significant minority in Germany it is the biggest minority in Germany we are I would say even the combating, that each government after 1989 is combating for having the you know, Sunday Polish schools in Germany being conducted by the Polish minority for the Polish kids. And we are not allowed to do it in Germany. So our idea was that, yes, it is allowed to arrange the, the Ukrainian school in Poland and it can be done by the Polish NGOs or by the Ukrainian society or by, by anyone under the Ukrainian regulation framework, but it is not going to be organized by the, let's say, the government side, yeah? So the government side is preparing the system to enter those kids to the the Polish system. The savings, important issue. 90% of eligible refugees of working age have sufficient savings for a maximum of two months. Huge challenge for the labor market, not delivering only fish, but rather opportunities, this is the real challenge uh, that, that we are having. But what is very promising, 81% of those of refugees are looking for the jobs. And the news from the, today in the morning, 230,000 Ukrainian people have already found themselves on the Polish labor market. It means being employed officially. I presume that another 200,000 is doing that unofficially. But this is really a very significant amount of people in a very short period of time enter the labor market. What is important for the structure of those refugees? We've got, as I mentioned, one million Ukrainian people before. The educational structure of those people who are now coming is much higher. We've got people with a higher education, skills like administration, education. A lot of them are lawyers, architects, so completely different structure of refugees that come to Poland. This is being presented on the next slide. This is also a completely different situation with, if we compare it with other refugee crises like in 2014 in Europe or even before. So this is a completely different social structure. And just to make a brief comment and to see those final numbers. 1.4 million come to Poland during the last 100 days. 61% temporarily accommodated for free. Half million. This is going to be the new Ukrainians living for a longer period uh, in Poland, not very well equipped financially. That is why looking for the job and to open for that, ready for reskilling. This is also important. They are ready to change uh, their professions and with the kids ready to come to enter to the Polish school system. The huge challenge for the coming months, it is the labor market, of course and the accommodation. We've got the shortage of accommodation even before the refugees crisis. So offering the, preparing the market in the, of course, in the very uncertain period with the huge inflation, changing cost of construction, it is one of the biggest challenge that we have to face with. But what is the optimistic and out of this um, survey that what I mentioned at the beginning, we don't have any hesitation, any and a darkness on the the Polish society, whether we should support or not those Ukraine. We feel, and the notion that this is also our war is very deeply rooted in Poland. Because, why? Because we were talking about the Russian as a threat for a very long period. So not only the right-wing parties, but also the left, it is a common sense in Poland. So we feel that this battle, this is the first battle when the West and the East world is combating itself, first time not being conducted on the Polish soil. And that is why we are so ready. That's true. That that is really true. And this is why we are so strongly supporting those who come here. And that is why the Polish authorities are so strongly politically supportive for the Ukrainian politicians nowadays and the Ukrainian part in this awful war. The crisis, the biggest as it was, the, the refugees crisis, but I would say that dealt in a very unpresidential way that might be as an example for the rest and what i must say being here as well it costs a lot in terms of simply the tough money yeah and uh, if we think about support that would be worth to be spread that this support is necessary not only now because when the summertime is started the consciousness and the interest of this war and also of those refugees is not going to be that strong as it is now. And we need this support to support those people for a definitely longer period. That is why it would be good in the presence in the places like this one here to once again maintain this uh, attention towards the process that is going on in the Central Europe right now. Thank you very much.
0: The third presenter is Mark Varga, who is also a researcher at the Migration Research Institute in Budapest. What he is talking about are the results of a visit that he and some colleagues did to Romania and Moldova to see how they're dealing with Ukrainian refugees because both of those countries border on Ukraine as well. And not that many Ukrainians have stayed in those countries, but there's been a significant number of people going through there. And so they've had their own experiences in dealing with the refugee crisis
1: a field trip to Romania and Moldova uh, in early May it wasn't organized by me because I am dealing with the migration in the Mediterranean EU countries but uh, one of our junior analysts and uh, I joined because it was so new for me to see a real refugee situation I'm used to the Greek islands I'm used to the Italian French alpine border where the movement of irregular migrants from other continents Is a daily experience, but not a refugee crisis in a neighboring country. So that's why uh, I joined uh, my colleagues. And we visited uh, two border crossing points in Romania and one reception center in Moldova. So the first picture you can see, our first stop, which was Sigetu Marmazie, which is uh, in the northwestern part of Romania. And you can see the river there, it's Tisa. And this bridge, which can accommodate uh, one vehicle at a time. And the other side is the Ukraine. So you can imagine that in the first days uh, when the war erupted, uh, on a daily basis, 2,700 people arrived through this bridge, the majority of them on foot. But it was a very harsh situation to uh, handle. This is a small capacity, as you can see. From the Ukrainian side, you can see the Romanian side. And there, there are my colleagues and interpreter with the officer in charge there. It's a wooden bridge, and it was uh, built in 1924. So you can imagine that this is a situation you can handle easily. And uh, the girls and uh, the people with bicycles are uh, internally displaced persons in the Ukraine. So they are not uh, refugees in a sense that they haven't left the Ukraine, but if there uh, would be still uh, a very heavy bombing, they would immediately cross and stay in Romania. So they are staying on this side where we are, of course, uh, in the, the Ukrainian side. But they go on a daily basis shopping to Romania. Now you can see from Romania the Ukrainian uh, side. So these movements are, are regular. And when a vehicle comes, everybody should step aside as we stepped aside when a vehicle came. Immediately, when the roar erupted, the NGOs were there and set up these tents for helping You can see Meda, this woman is a coordinator of this helping point called Blue Dot. This is the tent of Blue Dot, and these are several NGOs representing these people, representing several NGOs from Romania. You can see a lot of drawings from other continents, even from the US, of course, from children to those children in need. Basically, Romanian authorities expected at this border crossing point 10,000 people a day. But this figure hasn't been reached since. So that's why uh, I, I, have, I, I told you that p- most people were staying on the other side, are still staying on the other side, or just coming for shopping, for instance. But those who came, they don't stay here for long. They went uh, immediately to other European countries, uh, for example, uh, Poland or the Czech Republic, uh, where there is a bigger Ukrainian minority. So Romania is still a transit country. This uh, is at the eastern part of Romania. It is a village called Skuleni which is also a border crossing with Moldova. And this is a so-called helping point. It's near the main road. You can see on the right maybe a container with the flags. And this is a bus which departed from Moldova and went to Germany and it was just a stopping uh, point for them to have some refreshment you see, women and children with all their stuff, so uh, the bus was full and full of all the valuables they had was packed on this bus. There they got some rest and uh, some help, and they continued their journey uh, to Western Europe. The other crossing point we visited, it was in uh, northeastern Romania. It's called uh, Siret. This is a much larger. Uh, as you see, there are six lanes. You see the officers, and behind them there are six lanes one lane when the war broke out was made to ukraine the other five from ukraine two uh, three lanes i think yeah they were for uh, women and uh, children one lane for students and one for cars so it was uh, quite easy it was much easier to handle the situation here uh, and they uh, were moving the people uh, could get in, into romania quite quickly it was very very cold in the end of uh, february so, they needed immediate help. So, for about uh, 200 or 300 meters, now, even now, uh, we have these uh, tents. On the right side, you have tents for immediate medical assistance, for example. On the other side, there are the, the, all the volunteers. There are a lot of NGOs there. Till uh, this day, they have counted uh, 150 NGOs uh, there in uh, Sirette, uh, present there. But when we were there in May, there were uh, 47 NGOs present, all of a kind. This is a helping point also at the border. So uh, this, this is after a quick registration. You can't handle asylum came here. It's another place in another village nearby. But it's a quick registration point, and of course uh, they can have rest and uh, food and uh, whatever they need immediately from these NGOs, which are there in a really high number. For example, uh, the Jewish community, or you can uh, see a uh, Greek Orthodox Pope here. The churches, uh, these, these religious communities were the first who were there on the day uh, of the 24th of uh, February, so they were the first uh, civilians to, to help. So in Moldova, now we are in the capital in uh, Chisinau, you see this is the Mold Expo, which of course wasn't designed for helping people. Mold Expo is an exhibition center with great halls. And this is one of them. You see, it's not really uh, proper for this activity. But they turned to this uh, great helping uh, center. So Moldovans were immediately transferred to this exhibition center to, uh, for hosting refugees. Before it was a COVID helping point, uh, uh, by the way. so uh, Who are working there, they are not experts on this refugee issue. They are just dealing with commerce for 20 years, so they had to change their mindset immediately and focus on helping people in need. Yeah, And you can see one of uh, the places, this little playroom from children. I think they did a great job here. You can see the store where a lot of donations are placed, mostly blankets and little tons of food. Nowadays, it's, uh, the problem is not the lack of capacity, because uh, in Moldexpo, and of course they have several reception points in the country, not just in Chisinau, but in Moldexpo they have 430 places. Now it is about uh, 300 people there. Of course, the overwhelming majority are uh, women and children whose uh, husband or father is fighting uh, against the uh, Russian army at home. So there is this kind of fatigue that the Moldovans also were very, very helpful uh, and uh, donated really, really a huge quantity blankets and stuff and, and clothes. For example, now the biggest issue in Mold Expo is that they don't have summer clothes because everybody came in winter clothing in February. It was very cold, but it's getting hotter and hotter and uh, they don't have enough of summer clothing. Of course, here also many, many NGOs are present. For example, this is uh, a SAMU, which is a medical uh, assistance team, and uh, these people uh, came from Spain. They are doctors and other medical uh, staff who are helping 24 hours a day, so they, they are staying there. International NGOs, international volunteers, of course, they stay for two weeks or four weeks while Moldovan and Romanian NGOs who are helping, they are permanently there. So that's a difference. And my last pick, of course, is the picture of hope. I think everybody uh, here in this room hopes for a better future and peace in the Ukraine. This was made in uh, Siget. Our first stop at the uh, border crossing was with the gendarmerie, uh, the local police, and the tent of Red Cross. After a short rain, you can see the rainbow. Thank you so much.
0: And the final presenter is Nayla Rush, who is a senior researcher here at the Center for Immigration Studies. And she is talking about the U.S. reaction, U.S. response to the Ukrainian refugee issue and specifically talking about a recent paper of hers on our website at cis.org about the program called Uniting for Ukraine, which is something the Biden administration came up with to try to let in more Ukrainians than otherwise would be able to come in through normal legal processes, essentially using the parole power to let people in. And there's a lot of interesting details in there. It's supposed to be a private program, but in fact, everybody's eligible for government benefits. There's a lot of interesting angles to it. She talks about it. She gives a summary of it. Again, for more detail, you can read the paper itself, and there'll be a link to the paper in the show notes.
2: So like Mark said, I'm going to talk about the United States response to the Ukrainian crisis Briefly, you can go online, CIS.org, and see multiple reports there on the subject. In the beginning, when, when all this happened, the Biden administration wanted to focus on proximity help, meaning helping refugees in the region, uh, providing financial humanitarian aid uh, to Ukrainians in Europe and to the countries that was hosting them. A little bit after that, with some pressure from perhaps refugee advocates, President Biden when he went to Brussels, he said, we're going to bring 100,000 to the US. When we talk about refugees, one main pathway for refugees to the United States is the refugee resettlement program, which is a refugee leaves the country of war, goes to a country, host country, and then those who cannot stay in the hosting country for several reasons are brought to the United States. <coughs> there's, there's a specific program, a specific budget, specific ceiling, we call it ceiling, target on refugees, how many can come. But that said, not so many Ukrainian refugees have been coming to the United States, even after this crisis. In the past decade, around 19,000 Ukrainians come. This fiscal year from October through May, only some less than 900 refugees came. They come mainly through a program called the Lautenberg program that was set in the 1990s that was supposedly set for people in the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union, who were religious persecution. So they would come as a group. It was an easier uh, way to apply and come, not at individual process of persecution it they needed just to be part of this group religious group to be able to be admitted so these Ukrainian refugees we expect perhaps more of them another uh, measure the biden administration took was to give ukrainians overhead tps which is temporary protective status which is not the same as the european one the uh, You read about it, but the U.S. has limited benefits linked to that. They just It means they can stay and they don't need to go back. And what it also did on the border is with Title 42, which is because of COVID, you couldn't really apply for asylum and you you were able to be returned back from where you were, Mexico and stuff like that. For Ukrainians, they had the exemption. They could come and apply for asylum or come and, and be given parole, which is Kind of a a way to say, authorization to enter the country, it's not an immigration status. So that's in a nutshell what's been happening. That exemption, the last exemption, supposedly ended on April 25th, because what the Biden administration did is create a new program called Uniting for Ukraine. Now, it's supposedly a private sponsorship program. It's a streamlined process. It's quicker because it's kind of all online. What happens is that somebody, a U.S.-based, they call them U.S.-based Supporter, is in the United States, agrees to bring one beneficiary, an Ukrainian or a non-Ukrainian, if it's family member of a Ukrainian who had left Ukraine following this crisis, and vouch pledge and apply online for a form it's called declaration of financial support so this us-based supporter will say i'm going to support financially this ukrainian for the length of this day okay and then the ukrainian beneficiary can come under parole it's not coming under refugee status the us-based supporter in a nutshell doesn't need to be only a us citizen or green card hoarder or you know, U.S. national. They can be also asylees, parolees. So multiple people can apply for this. What they need to do is say, we support the person. Now, however, this financial support can be, it can come from multiple sources. It doesn't come to, need to come just from one person. So if, if I'm supporting a, a Ukraine beneficiary, I don't need to have money. Organizations, NGOs, Anybody can say, okay, we're going to add to this support list, and it will be taken into account. At the same time also, and I think that's a, a bit ironic, a Ukrainian who is coming as a beneficiary can, can add as a support his home in Ukraine or any asset he has. Anyway, it's a process all online. The, the form is sent, and then after vetting, etc., etc., et cetera, et cetera the, the, the Ukrainian can come. Each Form has to be just for one, even if there are multiple families. So if, if you want to support different people, you have to have another form. Before they come, if they are approved, they have to have an attestation. It's not a test. It's just an attestation that they had a COVID test, a polio, etc. There's, there's one, two, three uh, medical attestation that they need vaccine they need to have. So that's a, a quick process. So here's where it becomes interesting to me what I found. Parole, if when they come under parole, they don't have access to benefits, federal benefits, money resettlement, refugee resettlement benefits. However, there's a new bill that was passed and signed into law by Biden in May that gives Ukrainian parolees the same refugee resettlement benefits as refugees. So, a poor will come here with the benefits. Supposedly, it's financed privately. However, they will receive also public benefits. At the same time, if an organization is allowed to sponsor the Ukrainian benefit indirectly, not directly, one person has indirectly, it's federal money. There are nine organizations, we call them refugee resettlement agencies, who work with the US State Department to help refugees when they come under the refugee resettlement program. They are funded by the U.S. government by taxpayers money. So these who take money from the U.S. government can list themselves as a supporter financial of the Ukrainian and then the Ukrainian will be accepted. Also remember that the parolee now following this bill can also get benefits, so a parolee who gets benefits can now sponsor a Ukrainian who will come under a parolee with the same benefits. So we need to be very careful when we look at the fine print as we say and understand how this money, where it's coming from and perhaps what is portrayed as a private sponsorship is not as private as what we think it is. Money, we talked about the support, lots of financial aid has been given to Ukrainian refugees and the countries who are hosting them. The last bill, I think, I'm I'm only talking about humanitarian aid for refugees and food and etc. It's like 6 billion, I think, with this new bill. So, honestly, I think I've said enough. What is really interesting here is that we are resettling, supposedly resettling, Ukrainians or bringing them under parole by giving them the refugee resettlement benefits who are not in a country of war, who have gone to Europe, who have been given benefits in Europe, temporary protective status, etc. And I'll end.
0: That's it for this week's parsing immigration policy. If you want to watch the presentation we just had the audio of, there's a link to it. There's also a little bit of Q&A at the end and sometimes it's actually, for me, easier to look through the transcript itself. And we have the transcript up, and I've looked over it. I'm actually surprised that the transcription service got the names of some of these cities and towns and things correct, but they do seem to have. So for those who may want to actually get specific language and specific wording, instead of just replaying the video over and over again to try to get it down, you can just check out the transcript, the link to the transcript is in the show notes. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Again, if you like the podcast, or frankly, even if you don't, please rank and comment if your podcast platform allows that. And if not, feel free to just email me directly with criticisms or complaints at msk@cis.org. I hope to see you next week.